When the pandemic sent everyone home, we all struggled, but especially teachers and students. And according to our guest today, one of the biggest reasons is because learning is a social event. Welcome to Work Better, a Steelcase podcast where we think about work and ways to make it better. I'm your host, Chris Congdon, alongside our producer, Rebecca Charbowski. Hi, Chris. Today's guest is Anya Kamenetz. Anya speaks, writes, and thinks all about how children are learning, how they're growing, and what can help them thrive. She covered education for so many years, including for NPR. She's written a number of books. Her most recent book is called The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. She also happens to be raising two elementary school-aged daughters, so she comes at this from a lot of angles. Yeah, she has a vested interest in this research for sure. So stick around after we talk to Anya because I'll be joined by Andrew Kim, and he's a director of global research at Steelcase. And Andrew is going to share why the physical environment can make such a difference to how we learn. If you like this podcast, we'd really appreciate if you would rate and review it. That helps others to find it. Anya joins us today from Brooklyn. Welcome to Work Better, Anya. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You know, your reporting on education over the years is really fascinating, and particularly your work during the pandemic that led to your new book, which is called The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. And, you know, I think anybody who has a child or who knows a child is going to find your storytelling really poignant. And I'd just like to hear, like, why did you think it was important to write this particular book? Thank you. Yeah. Um, so when the pandemic hit and school shut down all over the world, I was here in my home office in Brooklyn with my two daughters who were three and eight years old at the time. Mm. And with my vantage point as a national education reporter, I really felt like I had a unique um, mandate to pay attention to what was happening to kids all over the country. And I also had some background and experience. So, you know, what I drew on right away was my experience reporting in New Orleans um, right after Katrina and then following up a decade later, uh, New Orleans is my hometown. And that was the biggest, you know, contemporary parallel that I could find to where a city closed their schools, their public school doors. Obviously, there was so much else going on in the city at the time, as there was with the pandemic, but the school closures alone did have an impact that was um, measurable on kids. And so that really was one of the things that that made me realize, okay, there's something really important happening here. And, you know, there were so many journalists looking at so many different aspects Mm -hmm. of what was happening with the pandemic. I felt like, who's going to watch the kids? Who's going to pay attention to what's happening with the kids. So that really became my mandate. I feel like the experience that we've all had was very different depending on the community that we're in and depending on, you know, our individual situations. And the the stories that you're telling really helped me to see and have a broader perspective on what other kids might have experienced. Because like in our community, you know, we have a lot of professionals that live on my block and some parents, you know, were nurses or pharmacists and had to go into work, but a lot of parents were able to stay home. Their kids had great internet connections and, you know, all of those kinds of advantages, but that clearly wasn't the case for a lot of the kids and families that you spoke with in your reporting. And I'm just curious, 
yeah, to hear a little bit more about that. I mean, that's exactly right. And I think, um, you know, one of the major problems and sort of the, the travesties and tragedies of the pandemic was there was a false sense of solidarity because people were withdrawn, you know, well, a proportion of people were withdrawn into their homes, right? Mm -hmm. And they were privileged enough to be able to work from home. I was one of them. And to uh, get things delivered and not have to sort of encounter the pandemic. Right. But up to, you know, half or more of the workforce actually was going out to work every day and uh, working in, in frontline uh, situations and exposed to the dangers of the pandemic. And so that, that right there really uh, kind of divided families and divided communities. And what we really don't spend enough time thinking about is that the solution that with a quote unquote solution that we came to with closing schools was predicated on the idea that you would have a custodial parent at home with the time to watch a kid plus an internet connection and a computer to connect to remote learning. And that just wasn't the case. Right. I mean, here in New York City, we have one in 10 children in the public school system who are housing insecure or homeless. Wow. Um, so right there, you know, we have uh, uh, a very, you know, over 51% of kids in the, pu in the public school system are low income. And not all of them are essential workers, but a lot of them are. Mm -hmm. So then you have um, older siblings, teenagers who are at home trying to watch kids. Um, you have families that are food insecure you have, um, you know, the the family that I followed in California, where the mother is cleaning hotel rooms for a living, yeah. and with the with the kindergarten shut down, her daughter's coming to work with her on the school bus, on the bus, the city bus, and she's experiencing kindergarten such as it is on her mother's phone. Mm. Um, so clearly, we didn't plan for that mm -hmm. eventuality. We didn't do enough to cover um, for that eventuality, and and way too many kids suffered as a result. Yeah. You know, I know it's just had such a huge impact on the whole educational system. And, you know, in our work, we think a lot about places and trying to make places that work better. And obviously, yeah. school is a really important place not only for our children, but for our whole communities. Yes. And we've done a lot of thinking about active learning, about, you know, the benefit of kids in terms of being able to be in a space and be able to move and engage with their with their classmates and their surroundings and that kind of thing. And, yeah. and I'm curious, in the work that you did, you know, what was the impact that you saw on kids who were suddenly shifted from learning in place to learning online without that ability to be an active kid, you know? It's never been more important. And it's this work is so important now because uh, this is exactly what kids were deprived of. Um, I mean, and it really runs the gamut. I mean, kids that were slower to walk or hit their physical mm -hmm. milestones because they're not getting that in-person playtime in, in an enriched environment, right? Um, Jonah, who's 11 years old and who love to play tag with his friends. He loves to go on his razor, razor scooter. Mm -hmm. And he has, you know, he deals with autism and dyslexia, ADHD. Physically being in front of the computer made him violent. I mean, he mm. he didn't have the ability to sit still. And, and it just frustrated him so much that it was daily battles. And just to think about the fact that San Francisco padlocked it's outdoor parks, you mm. know, so so mm -hmm. he couldn't even go out and have that physical activity, um, even when it was obviously very safe to do so. That was a decision that was not made with children like him in mind. Mm -hmm. um, and the loss of that place-based learning, that physical learning was really acutely felt, I think, all across the board and particularly for our kids who might be developing a little bit differently. Yeah. My uh, youngest son was in university but has ADHD 
and like for him, the online learning experience was rough. Um, yeah. You know, there were there were things that he could do to compensate and had a lot of accommodations, but but it was really difficult. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious, what do you see as the advantages of bringing, whether it's K through 12 or higher education students, to a physical campus? Like, how do they benefit from learning in that kind of either formal or informal ways that we learn on campuses? Yeah, I mean, this is such a strong question right now um, because obviously colleges had to had to weigh the benefits and the dangers of in-person learning. But I would really point to the mental health impacts. Um, you know, it was in June of 2020 that I started hearing directly from clinicians that work with young people to make sure that I knew as a reporter that the kids are not okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, specifically, um, some of the clinicians explained to me how learning is so social. It's so driven by the intersection, the conversations between peers as well as teachers. And that's how we find our motivation. That's how we experience our curiosity. That's how we explore ideas. And so, you know, some of that is possible in with a concerted effort in a virtual environment, but the informal learning, the bumping into people on campus, mm-hmm. you know, the, the kind of learning that takes place in the art gallery or in the science lab, or even at, at, at the, um, at the gym or at the cafeteria, you know, where there's informal conversations and all of that is very, very hard to replicate in an online environment. We talk about that a lot for grownups as well, that, you know, how are we figuring out what the future is going to be like for that? So we can keep people, you know, as you're saying, like learning is ideally something that is happening as a lifelong experience for all of us, you know, and and how do we figure that out in kind of this new era of hybrid learning and hybrid working? And so I kind of want to just go back and maybe pull on a couple examples that you wrote about in terms of this idea of like active or physical learning. Like I, I know there were some things that you looked at in terms of outdoor experiences or some of the things that I think they did in your hometown in New Orleans, right? Yeah, this was a really interesting example. So um, uh, there's a charter school network called First Line in New Orleans, and they're really well known for their edible schoolyard program. So they had been- Edible schoolyard. How cool. Yes, the Alice Waters program, and it's the first one outside of California, to my knowledge. Um, So just not only a school garden, but one that's very integrated with a cooking program. curriculum as well. So they they really do a lot of place-based learning there. And um, what happened during the pandemic was the Children's Museum, the Louisiana Children's Museum in City Park in New Orleans was closed to visitors. And so they were able to strike a deal where they could bring in their pre-K and kindergarten students to learn inside the museum. Mm. So they spent a school year in this incredibly enriched creative environment with all of these hands-on opportunities with lots of space for the kids to spread out. And it was such an innovative, um, you know, lemon, lemonade out of lemons moment, um, which is super cool for those kids. It does make me angry that we didn't get more creative and do that all over the country, you know, Mm -hmm. because we did have these spaces. So I did talk to the YMCA, for example, they, they operated emergency child cares for kids starting in March, 2020 with the shutdown. And they use their entire YMCA building, not just the place that was designated for kids programming, but they would use the, uh, you know, the basketball court, they would use the boardrooms, they would use anything that they had so that they'd had enough space. So there were these kinds of experiments going on, but we just, we needed way more of them. Mm -hmm. They are interesting in terms of pointing to where things might be able to go in the future, we we hope with higher adoption. Yeah. The other thing I, I wanted to ask about is, from an educator perspective, 
I've always said that I could never be a teacher. It's so hard. It just looks so hard. Yeah. You know, like during the pandemic, the stress that it had to place on educators and, and the educational system had to be really high. And, you know, I'm just wondering how this is all shaken out. How has the pandemic really changed the work of education and educators, you know, in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's very true. You know, there's been sort of a roller coaster. I would say that, you know, prior to the pandemic, our status quo in America was that teachers are underpaid for their education level. Yeah. Um, and they also don't, you know, they don't experience the full amount of respect that are their due that some other cultures, you know, give to public school teachers. Right. But there's a compensation, which is that there are close relationships between public school teachers and the parents that they serve. And most parents say that they're happy with their kids' schools, they're happy with their kids' teachers. Um, and so, you know, it was a, it was a not a great, it was an uneasy bargain, but it was something that allowed teachers to stay on the job. Um, and then at right at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this outpouring of accolades for teachers and a recognition of their jobs and, and how hard their jobs are. And then that was replaced with this uh, sense of, sort of exasperation and frustration where parents felt like schools aren't opening. They felt like the, you know, unions are opposing it. And then there was this really interesting thing where the Zoom school provided a window into the classroom mm -hmm. and uh, parents could see much more closely. I mean, teachers work in isolation generally. Sure. And that's a bad, you know, it's not a great thing. We, we prefer to have professionals be able to collaborate. But you know, some parents didn't like what they heard when they when they heard teachers overheard teachers teaching, and so there's this, um, and then there's this, you know, mobilization of extremist activists to kind of attack teachers, to attack schools, attack libraries, which sort of lends this feeling of being very beleaguered, and it's hard to resolve. I mean, what's happening now is, you know, there are some shortages in some positions, there are some early retirements. Um, there are people rethinking going into the teaching profession, mm -hmm. um, which is which is dangerous down the road because how do we get uh, a younger, more diverse teaching force? Sure. Um, and so there's a need for, I think, a broader reckoning and being able to have the nuance to say, I recognize that teachers worked incredibly hard during the pandemic and it didn't always have the results that we wanted, but that doesn't mean that they weren't working incredibly hard. Right. So how do you kind of square that circle? Right. Um, so where do you think we are now in terms of, I mean, let's talk about the well-being of educators and then talk about the well-being of learners and kind of where you see that at right now. So I think it's a mixed picture um, around the country. Uh, first of all, there's been a large infusion of federal money. Mm -hmm. um, which a lot of schools and states have used to increase teacher pay and make it more competitive, which they need to do in this labor market. Um, but it's temporary. So 2024 is when most of that, that money is set to expire. And then what's also been happening is that public school enrollment has been going down in many places. So uh, there's going to be some hard decisions to make as far as staffing goes. Um, and there's also a different recognition of needs. So, you know, uh, the the ratios of counselors to students has been way too high for a very long time. There aren't enough mental health professionals in our schools. And this is a mental health crisis that we're living through. So we need those people. There's a pipeline issue. They need to get trained. Mm -hmm. Similarly with special education specialists, because there's so many kids who didn't get their, their um, services that they needed. Now they need to get 
more services, compensatory services. So, and then there's IT, right? We know that this online stuff isn't going away and schools need to have IT professionals as well. Mm -hmm, Right. And there's also some changes in parent relationships. So um, some schools pivoted into having like full-time parent coordinators or spending more time on that family relationship, which I think is really important. So not only are staff levels changing, staff needs are changing, And then you have on the other end, I mean, who is going to be a teacher, right? Mm -hmm. There was a national poll, um, PDK does this poll of of, uh, Americans about their attitudes towards public schooling. And they're one of the sources of this very robust finding that uh, families like their public schools. They, They give their local public schools a high rating. However, this year they asked, would you want your child to be a public school teacher? And most people said no. I mean, I, that makes so much sense because, you know, I just feel like every time I turn on the news, you know, the teachers, again, librarians, they're all getting a lot of pushback. And it, and it really is, I mean, I thought it was a tough job before the pandemic. And I, I'm just curious, you know, because it feels like in life we've all kind of gone, oh, the pandemic is over. You know, everything just goes back to normal, right? Yeah. Are things back to normal do you think for educators or are people still in crisis? Um, Every time I give a presentation, I ask people to rate themselves on a scale from struggling to languishing to thriving. And languishing is really this midpoint where you're not in active crisis, but neither are you feeling a hundred percent. And I would say that that's, it's that midpoint. It's that six, you know, Mm. and some days it's better, but you know, then you go into we had this like COVID RSV flu, people are feeling sick. Sure. Yep. Um, and so, and then that kind of reminds you what it's like. I mean, we had COVID, my whole family had COVID over winter break and it's like, oh, we know how this feels like being at home, having to cancel all your plans and just give up on whatever you were trying to do. So I think the languishing, I think that's fair to say. And I see individual communities rallying around their public school teachers. I do see that. I mean, as much as they're this very combative stuff that makes headlines, there are a lot more quiet acts of solidarity and and bridge building. And, you know, when and the bottom line is, you know, most American children go to public schools and most families want to have positive relationships with the adults that are, have care of their children every day. They don't want to antagonize them and vice versa, because in the end of the day, your teacher and your public school and the parent shares big picture goals. They want what's best for kids. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot to build on there. And I believe I'm optimistic that things can improve. So what do you think about learners? Where do you feel like they're at at this stage? I know that's a really big question, right? Because they're probably all over the place, but. Uh, To me, the really big drama and the, the, the thing that I'm watching is not test scores, right? It's, it's the not so intangible quality of engagement with learning. And that's part of your self-concept and how you think about the future and your hope for the planet. And so the indicator that I'm so nervous about is a survey that was done in the fall, the past fall. And it found that uh, 51% of teenagers were considering a four-year degree. And that's a 20-point drop since May 2020, 51%. Wow. Wow. And college aspiration had been really high in that 70, 80, 85% range for a long time. It's not always connected to actual college readiness, Mm -hmm. but I think that's a sea change. And you see that there's been an actual drop, a 20% drop in community college enrollment. I mean, that's massive. Yeah, that is huge. So I, I don't worry about standardized test scores. I worry about kids thinking about their futures and thinking about what, what their plans are. And I don't, I mean, 
not everybody has to go to four-year college. Right. There are so many different opportunities out there. But what is their path? What are they going to be doing if it's not four-year college? Yeah. And, you know, what you just said really worried me when I when you talked about the community college, because a lot of times that's a pathway for a lot of people to be able to, you know, shift their career and, you know, maybe they're not going to do a four-year program, but um, that's a little worrisome when it starts impacting the community college level. Yeah. Um, I want to switch topics a little bit, talk, because we, we touched on this earlier, but didn't go as deep on this whole idea about online learning and um, higher education experiences. And I'm just curious what you're seeing about, you know, how that's playing out in the near term, what you think is likely to happen from the long-term experience in terms of adopting this kind of hybrid learning experience. So, um, Clearly, we're at a new milestone in the adoption of online learning. I don't think there's going to be hardly a higher education student that's not going to have some proportion of their degree earned online. Um, it's just going to be the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm concerned about or what I th- see as a design challenge for existing institutions is there's a mismatch between the reasons that students adopt online learning and the actual best affordances of online learning. Mm-hmm. So students adopt online learning because of convenience yep. and cost. Right. Yep. But the affordances of online learning favor very self-directed, self-motivated learners who already have kind of a a support system in place, and it can be very good for the things that it's good for. But how do we ensure that students are making those choices based on you know what's likely to find them most successful versus you know what they just need to do in order to do what they need to do for their lives. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's really the challenge. And so whether that's how you approach counseling or how you approach marketing or um, just program design in and of itself, um, making sure that there's accountability built in, making sure that students form cohorts um, and relate to their fellow students and peers, um, you know, this, this is really the, 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 the onus is on those who offer online learning to make sure that, you know, it's, it's not going to be the student's fault if they're not ready for the program. It's about the program being ready for the student. Yeah. We spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, the actual, again, the physical space where uh, this online learning is happening and what kind of experiences, you know, we really need to see. We've been just studying some classroom prototypes recently and really trying to understand, like, what is the primary difference in terms of how those spaces need to operate versus, you know, a traditional classroom? And, And it's not easy. Honestly, it's not easy for work, uh, you know, to get this hybrid collaboration or hybrid experience to be seamless yeah. and to have like equity for people, yeah. depending on, you know, where they're they're joining. And I'm, I'm just curious how you're feeling about that in terms of like, are our physical spaces, are we needing to do something different from what you've learned? You know, it's incredibly hard. And I, I mean, I had one teacher describe hybrid to me as juggling with knives, <laughs> um, uh, where they're teaching, you know, students in the classroom and students at home. And I, I had another kind of show me his setup where he was, you know, wearing a microphone, wearing his mask, wearing goggles, you know, wearing his mask, wearing a microphone to talk to the students on the computer and then like to talk to the students in the room, a different microphone. Like it was just like, so it's very difficult. Um, and I don't think that there's any perfect answers but the idea is not going away. Right. So it's possible that there are technological advances that can help with the setup. I mean, I've definitely been 
in situations where, you know, if you have the person on a large screen in an audio way, they're on a level playing field with mm-hmm. the people in the room. Um, I think it can be more more helpful. If there's a robust texting chat that can be simultaneous and feel like there's another channel where the people can chime in and be on the same page. Um, I had a very funny experience where I spoke, actually it happened twice this fall. I was, I was the only remote speaker. So people were gathering in person. So it's hybrid in the sense that I'm Mm -hmm. beaming in. Right. And then I, I was, uh, so I did that in August to give a live talk. And then I met one of the people in person like a couple of months later and she gave me this big hug and I am like, I don't know who you are. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. then she, she realized later that, Oh, I, I met you, but you didn't meet me. Right. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 Um, but we're going to keep working with it. And I mean, as, as much as it felt weird to see people walking on the street, talking to no one, and now it's totally normal. I think that we're going to, um, people are incredibly adaptable and especially socially. So we're going to, I think we're going to figure it out. We're going to continue to figure it out. Yeah. So before I let you go, I do want to go back to some of the stories that you told in your book because they really were pretty riveting. And one that really struck me was in North Carolina, there was a great example of a district that really kids had, you had mentioned earlier that, you know, some kids had shifted out of the classroom, not just to stay home and watch movies and play video games, but they actually went to work. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that story and what that community did. Yeah, so Gilbert County um, is one of the largest school districts, actually, in North Carolina. And it did have a large number of students who drifted into paid work um, Mm -hmm. rather than, uh, you know, be able to be connected to remote learning. And so they lost a whole lot of ground. Um, And that was for very, you know, very basic economic reasons. But that district embarked on such a concerted effort to get those kids back into school. This is a district where there's 100 languages spoken. So wow. enlisting, I know. And that's I'm not sorry, even do, rare. Do you see a hundred languages? One hundred, yes. Holy moly. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's it's rivaling, it's rivaling New York City, but I mean we have this wow. diversity now all over the country. Um and uh so they, you know, they went door to door, they held open houses, they they made sure that people knew that they were welcome back in school. And then they started this thing called Learning Hub. So they got out, outside funding for this. So the notion of it was, and they did, including on the weekends. So there were some kids who were like, I'm still working during the week, but on the weekend, mm-hmm. I'm going to try and come, just come and catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, but during the school week, they they have this after-school program and it is, they have the same teachers from the school day, which is a big ask wow, for those yes. teachers to stay after to help kids with their, with their, whatever they need help with, they catch up and they make it really inviting. There's a bus home, there's dinner. And in fact, it's so inviting that there were kids there. I was really surprised to see kids there that have straight A's that come to the after-school program just to hang out with their friends and to help their oh, friends. How neat. Because that's the culture yeah. of the school. Yeah. And it's actually like a fun place to be. It's a safe place to be. And you can go over to the basketball gym and play basketball for a while and come back. And the kids are really making progress. And what it really is, I mean, obviously it helps to do have extra time. But it inspired the kids to feel like they're not failures and like mm-hmm. they can make they can make progress and they can succeed. Yeah, that was just such a great example of community, like not just yeah. the the village, the town, but yeah. the sense of community that the kids created and helped facilitate among themselves. Um, uh, Anya, this has just been a great conversation. I feel like I could talk to you for a few more hours. I really appreciate you joining us today. So thank you for sharing your work with us. Oh, thank you so much for your interest. I really appreciate it. 
So after talking to Anya, I really wanted to talk to my colleague, Andrew Kim. And Andrew is a director with our Workspace Futures Group, which does research that's focused on the future of work, but also around education and educational environments. And Andrew, I think, has been doing this forever, um, but at, at least over a decade. So thanks for joining me to talk about this a little bit, Andrew. I really appreciate you being here. Hey, Chris, thanks for inviting me. It's great to have this conversation. I really enjoyed Anya's comments that she shared. Yeah, I thought so too. And I, I really liked what she was talking about learning being really social and that it's just driven by, you know, the conversations that we're having uh, with one another as learners, but also with the educators. And, you know, that's, as she was saying, a lot about how we find our motivation. And so I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about what we could do to think about spaces that would help encourage that kind of peer-to-peer -peer and social learning experience? Mm -hmm. That's a, a great question because we, we definitely believe that learning is a, a social experience. And I think there's lots of ways to think about promoting uh, those types of social interactions that we want to have in the built environment. And I think even within the classroom, you can think about a certain kinds of affordances. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of times classrooms are still designed in kind of the, the row mentality, yep. right? And so students are looking at the backs of other students' heads. Yep. Uh, but with uh, our kind of active learning design principles, we think about how do you, how do you allow better sight lines to, to others as you're looking at content? Or how can students even simply rotate in their chair to have that interaction with their neighbor? Or how, how can you create more group types of, of settings within the space? Or even think about uh, aside spaces. How can the, the students you know, maybe they're they're um, wanting to connect with their instructor right before or after class. Um, is there an aside space, a, a lounge setting in the corner of the classroom where they can have maybe a cup of coffee and have uh, yeah, a more relaxed type of conversation? And, yeah. Exactly. But there's um, also other kinds of spaces on campus to think about. There's hallways. We, we often call hallways the hallways of misery because you see students uh, <laughs> sitting on, on the floor with their materials. But how do you activate that space? How do you create maybe um, semi-private types of spaces where students can interact with other students before or after uh, class? Uh, there's a lot of outdoor uh, space on campuses, mm -hmm. and, and schools are often wanting to kind of activate that space and allow for kind of moments of, of interaction with others. And so I think there's there's lots of ways to think about supporting students, or even kind of uh, looking at the types of interests that students have too, and how do you create spaces that support their interests and to allow them to have social interactions. So think about co-curricular types of activities, but esports would be a, a great example that uh, esports is a very popular kind of activity mm -hmm. uh, among students. And how can you, how can you create esports settings, not only for the esports teams, but for students who have a casual interest in that activity and how could they have interactions with, with others as they're, they're playing uh, games. So I think it's exciting to really think about uh, these different types of social experiences. Yeah, just this, I mean, you're describing this range of spaces outside of kind of what many of us might think of as like a very traditional kind of classroom. And, you know, you're right, it's hard to have interaction with your peers when you're stuck looking at the back of their heads. Right. Um, that's a really good insight. Just being able to improve those kinds of sight lines and leverage all those diverse spaces. Um, that's really helpful. So Andrew, another thing that we talked about with Anya was um, hybrid learning 
and how different that is from a lot of the traditional ways that we've approached learning. And I know that you've studied this a lot and done a lot of different prototypes and tried a lot of different things. What are some of the key takeaways that you could share with our listeners about how to make hybrid learning a better experience? That's a a great question, uh, Chris, and I'm glad that Anya brought that up uh, when you were speaking with her. And I think hybrid experiences are are very uh, challenging Mm -hmm. uh, experiences for the instructor, and they often have divided attention between the the roomies and and zoomies. uh, I love that, uh, roomies and zoomies. Beyond just creating a, a simple, easy system that can be started up uh, you know, with a, a single click of a button. I think there's other things to think about as it relates to the, the environment. Mm-hmm. And so the acoustical uh, quality of, of the room is, is really key. And so we think about um, this, this phrase, hear me, see me. Um, and so how can you create a, a quality acoustical experience? And so what could you do to the wall? So uh, are there... Um, wall tiles that can be placed that limit reverberation and mm-hmm. that, that would help in terms of the experience. And, and even think about the, the number of displays, you know, separating content from, from people, mm-hmm. um, and then having um, displays on the front and back so the instructor can see the, instruct- the students in the room, but also see the, the, the zoomies. But one thing that we've noticed with hybrid experiences is that there's a tendency to, to be more fixed. Everyone wants to kind of stay within the, the camera view. And so I think having uh, flexible active learning furniture is, is key to uh, adjust that tension in, in this space and allow people to, to move more naturally and not be so fatigued uh, when they're in these types of experiences. And uh, another key uh, principle that we think about is pixels and pencils. And you want to also pixels support... Pixels and pencils, what's yeah, that? Pixels and pencils. So think about analog and digital tools. And with analog, think about the speed of thought tools like whiteboards or post-it notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helps to uh, promote movement in the space. Mm. For students and the educator can walk around and, and you know, move their, their arms as they're writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so having a whiteboard space, and that's one of some of the feedback that we got that in our hybrid spaces with um, this technology, the whiteboard spaces were some of the top things that the uh, the students uh, liked uh, in the space. Yeah, because you're right. I feel like when you're in hybrid collaboration sessions at work, you, you do have a tendency to be very stationary because yeah. of wanting to, you know, see and be seen. Um, Andrew, I just feel like you've given us some really good things to think about, like that are pretty memorable. So I'm going to remember about roomies and zoomies. I, I haven't talked about those in the workplace before, but I totally get it. And the hear me, see me is a really important principle as well as pixels and pencils. So that's great. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today just to kind of process what we heard from Anya earlier. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's great to have this conversation. Thank you for being here with us. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you please rate or review it so more people can find it? And visit us at steelcase.com research to sign up for weekly updates on workplace research, insights, and design ideas delivered to your inbox. So what's up for next week, Rebecca? Chris, next week, we talk to Dr. Jean Twangy. Dr. Jean is an expert on the generations, and we asked her to focus on Gen Z. We asked her, why is this generation so different? She really explains the difference between generations Mm -hmm. and just sort of your stage in life. Mm -hmm. We asked her how we can work better together. And we asked, what does Gen Z really want in the workplace? It was such a good conversation. I stayed after to even ask her more questions. Yes, we did take advantage of it. So we hope you'll take advantage and join us next week. 
Thanks again for being here, and we hope your day at work tomorrow is just a little bit better. Many thanks to everyone who helps make Work Better podcasts possible. Our creative art direction is by Aaron Ellison, editing and sound mixing by Soundpost Studios, technical support by Mark Caswell and Jose Jimenez, and our digital publishing is by Aureli Ariano and Jordan Marks.